You're listening to the May 27th, 2015 edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast. This is Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. On today's episode, Violet Luca of Film Comment talks with directing team Josh and Benny Safdie, whose new film, Heaven Knows What, opens this weekend. Before we go to our conversation with the Safdie brothers, we wanted to share a brief excerpt from our recent conversation with Norwegian author Carl Ubin Nasgard. On the occasion of the U.S. release of the fourth installment of his hit series My Struggle, we invited Nasgard to select a film to screen and discuss here at the Film Society. His choice? Lars von Trier's Dogma 95 classic The Idiots. The evening was moderated by our director of programming, Dennis Lim. In this clip, Nausgaard talks about the visual nature of his writing and adapting his first novel into a screenplay. I am a very visual writer. It's not, it's not like... I was trained when I was studying literature that realism was naive, and it was naive to believe that there was something behind the letters, but the letters that mattered, you know, the sentences, the letters, the materiality of the language and so on. It was very much language when I you know, was in my 20s. But when I'm reading, I don't see in language. When I'm writing, language is completely unimportant. It is what the language evokes that's that matters. So so I'm basically write, writing about images. That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. Um, and I tried, I have been trying to write for a film, uh, uh, adapting my first novel into a film manuscript. And that's the hardest thing I've ever done. I realized there was a completely different language, a completely different way of thinking. And it's so easy with a novel, you know, you can just say, it's like this, uh, you are like that, and this was going on, and, and you can just write it, there you have to show it, you know. So the, edit, the, the, um, the, um, the director, he just laughed when I got the first draft. Because all, uh, all the people are introducing themselves. Hello, my name's, I'm working over there. And I'm, I didn't realize that you just can cut in and, and do all those kind of things. And it's a completely different way of thinking. So we are on the fifth draft, I think. And it's getting a little bit better. And then I see this and I just want to you know, throw it away. And, it's, it's, uh, and I think one of the things with Last Frontier is that he is so simple. He does it so quickly. And I read an interview with him uh, that he said when he, when he wrote Antichrist, he just locked himself in a room with a bottle of uh, liquor and, and was drunk and wrote it in a, in a few days. And I understand absolutely, completely why. Because he's so clever and he knows everything about filmmaking. And that is really the death for, for an artist to, to know too much or to be too clever. And he, he wants to get away from that. And by that, he's being you know, even more clever, making even better things. The screenplay that you say you're writing, it's based on which, which book? My first novel, it's, uh, okay. it's a, a fictional thing. It's called Out of the World. So that's something you're working on now? It's yeah, it is. is so who's the, who's the filmmaker? It's Frederik Edfeldt. He's a Swedish uh, filmmaker. He two, made two films before. Right. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I like really well working with him, you know. So I try to make it 
give it to him. I want to know what he is interested in in this material. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like something is lacking all the time. So what I did, I have a kind of a voiceover, introduced kind of a voiceover, which I know is kind of not, you know, <laughs> but it solved a lot. It makes it much more literary, and at the same time, pulls you in, in his mind, you know, the, the, the main character. Yeah. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Want to experience the Film Society of Lincoln Center's rich slate of year-round programming in person? Then become a member today. Since the 1960s, the Film Society of Lincoln Center has introduced audiences to countless filmmakers from around the globe. Our extensive programming includes 5,000 screenings each year with new releases, retrospectives, special events, premieres, and annual celebrations like the prestigious New York Film Festival, New Director's New Films, Rendezvous with French Cinema, the New York Jewish Film Festival, and so much more. Supporters in their 20s and 30s can join New Wave, a membership program that provides year-round access to premieres, parties, and exclusive events. For more information about becoming a member of the Film Society, visit www.filmlink.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. know that I love you, baby. And I'm so sorry that things had to come to this. I never wanted to die. And I need you to know how sorry I am. I'll always love you, even in death. Ilya! <laughs> love forever, Carly. Heaven Knows What is a gritty New York drama starring Arielle Holmes as Harley, a heroin addict in a chaotic relationship with the explosive Elia, played by Caleb Landry Jones. Much of the film was shot just blocks from Lincoln Center and is based on Holmes' memoir Mad Love, which recounts her experiences as a junkie living on the streets of New York. The film had its U.S. premiere in the main slate of the 52nd New York Film Festival last fall and was a favorite of both critics and audiences. On the occasion of its theatrical release, we sat down with the Safdie brothers in the amphitheater of our film center to discuss the film. The conversation ranged from their process of adapting Holmes's raw material to the integral role music plays in the film. So let's go now to Film Comments' Violet Luca in conversation with Josh and Benny Safdie. Okay, so I ran into Ronnie Bronstein on the subway one morning who helped you uh, adapt Ariel's pages and served as co-editor on this project. And he said that he always loved Jack Horkheimer's Stargazer mm -hmm. um, for its theme song, which is Sao Tomita's uh, synth version of Debussy's uh, Arabesque Number 1. Yeah, which um, we don't use. You do not, <laughs> sadly. I, I think we did use that in a Frownland like added uh, like additional video piece Doo -doo for the dollar. Canadian release yeah, called Doodoo -doo Dollar. Oh, okay. It was Ronnie paid, he put uh, dog shit on a uh, dollar bill and then we filmed it from across the street to see who it would take. It was like another, you know, deep cable oddity. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your little <laughs> oh, preamble there. Fine. No, that's good. Um, you're just, you probably sold some DVDs. Um, at what point did you decide to use um, Tamita's music in the film, and how did you make decisions about when to use it? I'll let Benny answer this, the latter part, but I, um, I, 
An, immediately. I mean, we, we talked about, we talked, Ronnie and I were discussing while we were reading Ariel's pages and then adapting them and discussing the vibe of the movie. We talked about Sturmundrang a lot and we talked about potentially drifting. We never actually wanted to use, you know, you know Bach or, or, but we wanted to, because this movie is, you know, it's deep cable in a weird way. It is, it is, um, it's you know the the children of the night. It's it's it has a it has a, a red light vibe to it, and we it, it's a little maudlin. Even though that music is very charged emotionally and it's very romantic, romance was the most important part. And I don't know. I think it was just. I mean, I think the from the first thing that was ever cut to the movie, it was it was actually strange to me to piece that we don't use, um, and it was off of um, exhibitions. But yeah, it was it was immediate. There was no um, there was no experimenting with any other type of music. It was Tomita from the start. And then yeah, as to when to use it, it was just if the if the scenes or the the moment earned the music in a way. So it was like uh, the it kind of felt like the beginning, like the Ilya parts, always kind of needed music. And then when she goes into Mike's world. I think it only uses like the I I, I say music because there is music in that section. There's only, but I, I'm talking specifically about Tomita. It, there's only like a Tomita peak when they're kind of walking, and there's that rooftop shot of them, and that's kind of where it reaches that next level, this kind of other other world level. But the other music in that section is mostly kind of diegetic music. It's music of that world. There's Even the, though the Headhunters track isn't diegetic, so, no, no, but not it is as, in it, her head. It feels like, if you were there around... That's what it felt like, yeah. You'd hear that music, so it would be diegetic. And it's, it's just, like it was playing... It was playing in I have a question. Why isn't movie? diegetic in the dictionary? Is it? I don't know. It's not in the dictionary. What's in the film dictionaries? They, well, what is that? What is a film dictionary? I don't know. But it's the My, thing is, is, it was like that was playing on... People were playing that on their phones or variations of it in that... Like we during while we were shooting that, but of course, yeah, the editing it's like super there and present and to to give it the feeling. But for the most part, it was just yeah that the music affects you when you watch it, so it, you needed to use it kind of very sparingly. I I don't want to jump ahead, but you know there was a there you know Panic in Needle Park, which was shot a lot uh, you know a lot of uh, on the same territory that we shot our film, our movie. Um, it, he, I, Jerry Schatzberg, there's not one, not even overheard piece of music, like diegetically distant in a room. Maybe one, maybe it's in like the one of the hotel scenes, but it's you barely can hear it. And his, you know, he was trying to kill any type of, even though that movie's, I consider that more of like a, a, a love story than a movie about dope, but he really wanted to suck out all the romance to to that film. And I don't, and I don't think at all that our, our movie, I mean, it's, that's the challenge when you make a movie about drugs because the people who use them, there's, a, there's the medical side of them where they're medicating themselves. And then there's the, you know, the romantic side of it, which is usually the, the beginnings, you know, the honeymoon period. So we, we knew, I mean, Ariel's life was very musical, very, very musical. So that from the get-go, we knew we wanted to use music. But it is, and like up, all the movies we made up until now, we barely use music. I mean, we use them for like very heightened moments, and then this, for some reason, I don't know. And it's like, and it's like, it's not like um, it would be one thing, like you said, if we had used the 
like uh, the New York Philharmonic or something of Debussy, but it's not. It's this like harsher Tomita interpretation of it. So that kind of gets rid of the romanticism right there in a way. And uh, it, it was important to kind of keep that that distance, you know, if you because if you're somebody who's addicted to drugs, you kind of lose sight of where you are in a way. And I, I think the music adds another level that kind of that furthers their perspective. Just to add one more thing about Tomita, think about this man. He was one of the first, I think, 15 people who had the <laughs> Moog synthesizer, and he brought it to Japan. He went to, I think, Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. bought it, didn't even know how to use it. I mean, they, they weren't, it's not like an instrument that you see, it just looks like basically a, a computer, a computer. Uh, with no interface. Mm-hmm. So he brought it back to Japan and in customs, they didn't know what it was. So they wouldn't let him take it from customs. And they said, he was telling him, no, it's a musical instrument. They said, okay, then make it, make it play. <laughs> and he, he's like, it doesn't work. I don't know how to use it yet. He's like, I don't know how to make it play. So I think the story is like it was in customs for like 15 weeks or something like that. And then finally he got it out and then it was... It was the type. It's the type of machine that it, in the beginning it had to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. So there were shifts. It was him, and I think Hasano was using it in the nighttime or daytime because Tomita liked to write it right at night, which I think is fitting for this movie. You, you, uh, you actually just reminded me when Greenpeace actually went on their first exhibition to like save the whales. They had a guy with a Moog synthesizer, like a giant one. They built it on the ship. Because they thought that was the only way to actually speak to the animals, oh. so they were they had, they had a thing that would send out Moog synthesizers in the water to the wow. to the whales, and you just hear the, and this guy. There's all these scientists, and then there's this guy with this crazy ear, like wow, wow, like sending it in the water. So I don't know. It's a strange. It's a strange instrument. Well, um, well to return to the subject of romance. There's never really a point in the film where you see Ilya even being sort of nice to Ariel. Um, like, and so you don't really, so her love for him is almost sort of like this primal, un, unavoidable fact. Like it's just, it, it exists. Um, and can you talk about how you structured the film? Because obviously I think, you know, you're talking about, this is very much a film about addiction and drugs and and not in any way romanticizing it. And you've cited both um, Mike Lee and Andre Zulowski's influences on this. Well, the Zulowski was really just an influence for the expressive, you yeah. know, for Ariel to, you know, for the direction of which we wanted her to kind of have these kind of explosive moments of expression, which isn't, you know, you do, anyone who's ever, you know, been close or is had experience as an addict usually as an addict you don't see it but so you have to see it from afar and from a sober place but when they do when they do come you know they, when they're confronted when, a, when an addict is confronted with the idea that they might not have this anymore there's a terror and a panic that is unbelievable I, I don't wish it upon anyone and it's un, it, it, I mean it's a very it, it's apocalyptic and I think of our movie as apocalyptic. I think Mad Max and, and Heaven Knows What would be a great double feature because uh, it's relentless. It doesn't yeah. stop. And when you're confronted with that kind of, I, that concept of no more, which is in, in, the, in the world of, of someone who lives on the street and someone who's, who's an addict, like, I mean, 
now is all that matters all the time and no more insinuates that there's a future right. or that there could be an end and this invincibility is disappears yeah. so that i'm just speaking to like the zulowski reference you know it's like we just kind of wanted ari to kind of have these peaks in the movie where she does have these kind of hor horror horror freakouts yeah. and um you know we really wanted originally when we first started reading the pages that ariel was 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 giving me giving us it was a real instinct to kind of focus on the beginning of their relationship because it was very beautiful and romantic and and um it was before heroin was introduced into their lives and there was mostly they were like you know dealing mushrooms and acid and they were in the hard style rave scene which is that a very particular rave scene which is almost like punk classical music mm -hmm. uh electronic and um you know it's just you know falling asleep on the beach at five in the morning in coney island and you know running to this person's grandmother's house and you know carving swastikas into like you know they're not they don't even believe in the swastika but just like the idea of the charge everything was charged but then mm -hmm. you know we really did want to um kind of approach a psychodrama and and see and allow ariel to kind of figure her shit out and and we couldn't ask her to try to resurrect these feelings from, you know, three, four years prior. And when I met her, I met her about three months before she attempted suicide on her wrist. Mm -hmm. And I remember when that happened. And I remember my I wasn't there, but I, I, you know, was around it. And I just remember my perspective of it. And I don't know, it just seemed like, and, and from, a, from an artistic standpoint, her writing for that chunk of her life because it was so present for her, was so relevant and so nuanced, and it just it just told it just spoke to just, you know the structure of the movie. Yeah, and just to add to that, just the the fact that like the time the, the way she talked about time and the way she referenced time, the the stuff about Ilya in the past, it was written as if it was like forty five years ago. It was yeah. so far in the past that it felt strange and it didn't like. It almost felt like it was impossible to resurrect, you know, because it was what she what she was feeling now. Like even things that happened weeks ago in the writing felt like a long time ago. So this was something that was four or five years prior. That's even crazier. But um, yeah, it's it's almost like the during the editing, it was like okay, Ilya needs to pop up here because we're not like the the movie. When needs we were Ilya. reading the pages, yeah, it was like where is your eyes come? would yeah. scan forward to see if Ilya was going to come yeah. in. It was it was almost the way you read a pulp pulpy novel. You <laughs> like waiting split, and his name is through. so iconic, so you would just wait for him to pop up. And you know, I didn't meet him for a long. The real Ilya, I didn't meet him for a long time. And I was always he was this kind of looming presence, and it, we really wanted that. You know that that idea that I mean, look, I'm a I'm a drama junkie. I love drama. I'll run to it. There was five gunshots on my block last week. Everyone was running away. I was running right to it. I, for some reason, I just my instinct, and that's one of the things I relate to most about that world is this this kind of yearning for drama because drama keeps us present. I think that's why people love movies so much. Mm -hmm. Well, they love movies so much because we're all perverted and we like to look at our likeness. So we just like to look at people. And then secondly, it's because we just like to, to give ourselves purpose and in, in, through drama. And, and I think the movie is addicted to drama also. Mm -hmm. Like when Ilya, I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddy Duress in the movie was like a huge revelation for us. But his, he represents, and it was interesting because Ronnie and edited all the Ilya related stuff and Benny edited all the Mike related stuff. And you know, I would go from Ronnie to Benny 
and I would have to kind of be this kind of you know well, and it was yeah. this this thread Mediator. in between yeah. the it's, two of them. Yeah. It's funny, but yeah. I wanted to just say that like when the movie doesn't when the when the movie when Ilya's presence in the movie wanes. You kind of are like sitting forward. You're like, when is he going to come back? Yeah. And I need him to come back because he's the drama of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like, yeah, it just, it just also then, then after that, so it was like, okay, the beginning, the middle, and then there had it was distinctly three parts. You know, that's kind of what it felt like, and that's just an organic thing that happened in the editing. There's a lot of stuff that we don't use, but to have so once once he comes back, there was only so much time when he leaves again that you could spend away from him and then when he then when they kind of come back together it was like okay this can only last again for so long so everything was dictated by the true nature of the relationships how and how they would have felt and it was very important to have this mobius loop like last night i actually watched the last 15 minutes uh for the first time in a while and i had some real distance from it and i'm thinking back on some of our decisions and i'm you know i was very proud i was you know that this this, you know, when Ari's thrown out of the bus and, you know, this was a last second writing edition, you know, we wanted the, the cut to start bleeding again. And it's, I mean, you, we can't be more of a Mobius loop than that. The, the wound reopens and she goes and, and she's in the middle of an insane drama. It peaks and when it peaks, it has to fall back. And where does it fall back to? It falls back into the hands of Mike. And it literally, you could... I mean, this day and age looping is such a big deal with like social media and the way it's shared. The movie could be looped. Like, I mean, you literally could like at the end of the Dunkin' Donuts could just cut right to 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 Ari and Ilya, uh, Harley and Ilya on the park. I have to say, um, at the premiere, at the NYFF premiere, and I hadn't seen the film. Oh my God, and everybody just, talks about that. Premiere. Well, I well, I just I had only read Dan's um, Dan Sullivan, who also works mm-hmm. there. He did an interview with you guys, and after reading that, and I came downstairs and I knew exactly who Ilya was, like immediately. Like I, mean, I was like, I know who you are. Oh, at the premiere. <laughs> at the premiere, like you know, even before even before we p- people sat down, I was like, I I know who you. Ilya are. was <laughs> Ilya was a superstar, man. He was okay. like. Yeah, he had a way of, of, of uh, he was a lord, you know, wherever he went, you knew who he was. Even when he was spanging on the street in front of Grace Papaya, uh, you know, he was, he usually, his people are quite invi- invisible, but he, um, not, you know, t- to the general public, but he, he did well spanging. Um, so I guess sort of speaking to the level of heightened emotion and the physicality involved in these performances and, you know, obviously the shooting conditions, were you ever able to do multiple takes of scenes? Or yeah, how all did the time. You, okay. All the time. I mean, we, we shot a lot of the movie to camera, uh, all the stuff on the street. That was where the concept came is like, we're going to be shooting on the street. We don't want to block off. We don't want to cut the energy out of New York. So let's shoot two cameras and the cameras were really far away shooting their close-ups and that we kind of brought that concept into the interiors whenever we could Mm -hmm. just because it became everybody on set we were such a small crew everybody on set had a lot of purpose and uh, Chris Messina who was running uh, second camera and Sean and I was basically I had these two monitors so I could monitor both of them uh, which was very difficult for the first week, but I, I'm, we just started to, we just got into a, 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 the hang of of things and and blocking and 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 uh, building frames out, and we just, we I don't know, we got into a groove where, as the more we 
shot, the more comfortable some of the first-time actors were getting with this process. And then we would do some takes like yeah, there was, the 12 times. I don't think there was ever... We never just kind of did one take and that was it. Just because that's not... Everything was very... It was what like, about the fact that we shot some scenes, we would shoot them and then review them. Yeah, and, and then go, go back, back and reshoot did them. Did that like three times. Like the, the bank with scene. The bank shot, scene we did that three we times. We shot three or four times and it was it was just... It was yeah. It's it, I guess it's it, I'm I'm happy that you watch it and think oh okay they only did a couple they only well, did one take yeah. and that's it and it was like we had the two cameras and we got it there that's great that means that we did we kind of disappeared properly, um, but uh, yeah it, it was it was the much, other scene that we did a bunch of times like, was the uh, the first time Harley sees Mike running yes yeah, we, we, we did that we did I think two or three but two it's times like, it's just the the, the idea that. Um, we're shooting very far away, and then a truck could stop and block the entire close-up, and then we're just we're, we have to do it again. You know, yeah. it's like logistically we made it very difficult for ourselves. Yeah. To we did this short film called Black Balloon, mm -hmm. and Sean. That was the first time we worked with Sean, and that was and there was no two cameras in that, but there was one of the you know peaks of the movie is this balloon breaks a van window to like kind of hang out with other balloons, even though he's breaking them, free, setting them free. Right. Uh, and Sean's like, all right, where are we going to see this from? And like I said, I, you know, had, I've we, always... It's so important. Like, we only had three windows. That's, two. Yeah, yeah. We had, we we had two. Because we broke one of yeah. them. So, <laughs> so he is, I was like, all right, we're going to go. I, knew, I brought him across the street and underneath this median. This is a heavy trafficked area. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I was like, all right, we're gonna, we should shoot it from this angle and over here and this length. And we developed the shot. And then the green light happened. And literally, there was just tons of traffic going in two different directions and left right in front of him. And Sean looks at me and goes... Are you sure you want to do this? Because if we miss the moment when it breaks, it that's it. If we're cut off, I said, "Well, that's you know that's the gamble you got to take." Because if you do get it, that's cinema. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was yeah, like, no, but that was like he know he's like you make it so difficult. But he, and that definitely puts a strain on the the stress of of the crew. But I think you know making movies isn't fun, so it shouldn't be fun and it shouldn't be easy. So you got to make it as hard as possible. Everyone says, "Don't make movies with kids." Did that? Don't make movies with animals. Did that? Uh, multiple times and then you know people don't even, I got my pleasure being robbed a, a junkie in, from uh, from squat C squat which is a squad on Avenue C broke into my car after we like left something in there for an hour and stole $30,000 worth of lenses and we went into his squat because I knew someone who lived there and I confronted him and then Elaine or who's acting in the movie followed him to a supermarket and then talked to him anyway and then everyone said don't ever work with junkies and whatever I, I mean I, again I didn't my interest in this movie didn't start with Ari, Ariel being a junkie. It started with her, me being amazed by who she was as a person. Not, mm -hmm. I didn't even know who she really was about. On that note, so the use of non-actors in this film, you know, a lot of them were First-time actors. Or first-time actors. Yeah. It's an important, because it, the thing is, is, a lot of the times, these people have just never been given the opportunity to, to act. So okay. it's, but they... I will agree there are such things as non-actors. There are people, you, but I think a lot of the... I mean, like Maynard is a non-actor. Yes. There's He's a few people in our movie who are non-actors, but then, true. like, you know, Ariel. I, I mean, she's an actress. She's done now three movies. It's just yeah. Once once given that opportunity, they they it's like they're performing all the time, and when they are given the opportunity to be in front of a camera, it doesn't change anything. So it's just like, yeah, it's 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 a it's a separate it's a separate word. Okay, <laughs> so so working with first time actors. Okay. Yes. 
Um, how, so how do you sort of approach that situation? Um, and did you ever feel like you were getting into difficult emotional territory given that some of them were literally recreating awful things that had happened to them? <clears throat> I'd say that with Ariel, there was maybe the only time it, it got, she was, she's very resilient and she was very, and she's very open to extremity, extremity, like very open to it. I mean, the music that she chooses to listen to, the art that she responds to, the, the books that she reads. The only time I ever felt like over, like hypersensitive about it was when we were recording the voiceover from her pages. It was, it was like a couple of weeks after we had been shooting, you know, after we finished and we had to go back and re-record it. So it was kind of like, it was, yeah, it was weird. She we just were, broke down yeah. and started crying. And, and that was the, the only time I ever really felt like, Jesus, like this is, because she was able to distance herself from it and really play this character and doing all these multiple takes. And, and on the bus, you know, when we shot the bus sequence, when she does her freak out, we had to do that a lot of takes. I did a lot of takes of that because I, she wasn't being expressive enough. And, um, and, and I, whatever, it ended with her breaking a window, yeah. which wasn't scripted, and which was great. And that she really, after that, I remember her being in like a manic panic and um, kind of like the nail polish right. uh, and hair dye. Um, no, she was... <laughs> She went into like a manic panic, and I, you know, we just had to calm down. But and then, but like the wrist slitting scene, it was harder on Caleb than it was on Ari. Like Ari was really, I mean, she wears her. I mean, if you've ever had a chance to meet her, she wears her. It's a huge scar. I mean, Caitlin, I'm sure you noticed it. Like, it's a really big scar. I mean, I remember when I when it was fresh and it was like really intense because it's not, it's not like, you know, it's not something you can cover even with like. A wristband. Uh, so she wears it proudly, and that was. There's a moment in the movie where I'm so proud that we got it with Necro mm -hmm. when she gets out of the hospital, and he says, "Did you get stitches?" He goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "How many stitches you get?" And she says, 13. And he goes, "She." He says, uh, "Let me see." She says, "You want to see?" And then she shows it to him, and he goes, "What's wrong with you?" And she's smiling. Yeah. <laughs> there's she's. I mean, whatever. Ari's. You know, she wears it as. Well, she. That, yeah, that's, that's a. It's a pride for her. It's like what yeah. What. What did you, that was what we, the, the bank scene was supposed to kind of really get at, and it does, and that's why we did it so many times, because I never really feel like we did it perfectly, but she really, it's the fact that she's proud, that she was willing to kill herself, or at least the gesture of it. And, that, well, and that, is, what I think, is, the, that's the, the movie. I mean, and what's interesting about that bank scene is, is that it, yes, she is proud, but then there's also Mike in that scene, the, he says, like, he looks at her and he's like, well, you did like, you, you don't really know what you're talking about. Basically. He's like, you're, you're, you're infatuated. I don't think you know what love is. And like the fact that there are those two like feuding Supposedly ideas. that scene got a lot of laughs yesterday, which is really? so strange to me. I can't imagine laughing at that oh my scene. God. I don't know. But people said it was like chuckling with the disparity between the two. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause yeah, like, yeah, the fact that they're on two completely different planes, like I can't believe that you can't see that. Yeah. Buddy told me that but people were laughing. It's uh. Yeah, it's strange. I think when she was doing... Well, that was what was so odd. It was like... It was such a routine thing that we were doing when we were recording the voiceover. It was like, okay, we need to go back. But she was... 
and it was when she was actually recording the not the first one. It was the the, the it was voiceover. Benny, but the to be one. fair, it was like a week before she went to rehab. Of course, no, I'm saying, but I, it, what it wasn't it was, like weeks after we stopped shooting. No, no, I know. I'm saying, but what I'm getting at though is it was um, she was reading about Ilya in a very loving way, and it, it was the love letter, and she kind of there was like this realization in her head that maybe that's never going to happen again, and it was like it, to see that and just to hear her cry like these real tears it well, was the, very it was the very first time intense. i recorded that voiceover that we were using for the majority of the edit i recorded it in my car like i went up met up with her and she was spanging on 54th and and madison cuz you know we get into this weird state of where we we shot the movie and then we didn't want to shoot our ending and then cuz she broke the window and we just knew it was never right cuz she wasn't into it so we're like all right we'll edit the movie and then we'll write the ending and then we'll shoot it and it won't be a big deal but it took three months to edit the movie, or two months to edit the movie, which is ridiculous. Um, That's too fast. And, <laughs> I know it's crazy. I mean, then we had like we still weren't done even of after course, that. But whatever. I'm saying we had like an assembly up until the point, like a, a, a pretty tight one, yeah. and I couldn't. And she, we had a deal. You know, we paid her for the movie, paid her to write, and then she said, in addition to that, I really want to go to rehab. So I said, okay, and I like called so many different facilities and I got this one com company in Florida to agree to do it at a major discount mm -hmm. and um, whatever but we couldn't and they were like like you're gonna you we're not this offer will not stand forever and I said well we cannot send her down to Florida for rehab and then ask her to come back and finish this movie right. once she goes there I don't ever want her coming back to New York ever again like for her own good like in New York that's what you need to do you need to leave the world mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, we entered this weird kind of stasis after the movie where like she kind of was living with me at times and at, at our producer Sebastian's and then other times she was staying with Buddy at his mom's house but she was still like making her money by, by spanging on the street and so I would go and meet up with her and I would show her scenes on my phone and we would sit down but I remember one time we recorded the audio what I'm getting at is, is there was, she was so in the world like literally she came off the street she, she got into my car, we recorded the voiceover, we drove around, I dropped her off at Buddy's house, and, and that was the day. But when she, we were done, and this was like weeks before going to rehab, she came to Oscar's office, our, one of our producers, and we were up in this thing, and she knew that this was basically the last thing, that creative thing she was gonna do for this project. Mm -hmm. She was reflecting on the entire process, I think. Mm -hmm. And she knew that she was walking away from Ilya yeah. forever, yeah. and like, yeah, I mean, I don't even now with Ilya gone, like I don't even know what that means, but whatever. Um, well, can sorry, we, we give you long answers. No, it's excellent. Sorry. It's excellent. It's good for a podcast, yeah. bet, right? <laughs> no, it's really. I like. It's really digging into what the film is about, so it's all interesting. Um, speaking of Ilya, can we talk about the shooting star scene? Because that was probably I ninja, think ninja no no no, ninja, no 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 the, no, the, oh, the, the cell phone star. explosion okay. the cell phone, the, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because I mean the the like I I there are several there are three to me really iconic scenes in the film mm -hmm. that sort of mark the different phases the first being when she's in B Bellevue mm -hmm. and she's getting attacked and that's <laughs> insane and mm -hmm. then. Uh, but I just referred to cell phones, a shooting star, and then, of course, the bus and the exploding into flames. Yeah. But I loved, I loved the shooting star because it's like, or the, it's like, a moment of comedy almost. But it's, it's like, it, like, what is even happening? It's like, funny it's so I, great. I, I, 
like how when did I, you how did you come up with that i guess like, uh, the way we from? came up with it is even weirder <laughs> uh, in her pages when she when Ilya would come back and he would just obliterate the mic character with like a couple of words mm -hmm. the way ariel would describe it was so expressive it was like an explosion yeah and and then we shot it, and you know, we shot this well, phone. He, yeah, we he shot actually, this. We actually took the phone and broke it into a million pieces. She said, uh, and so we shot that. We shot, we shot it as best as we could hmm. using lenses and you know f framing to you know express that feeling. Mm -hmm. And what happens? You edit it into the movie, and it's like, oh, he broke a cell phone. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> yeah. So we were sitting there in the edit, and I was sitting there with Ronnie, and he said, he said, what well, we need right here. It's such a weird thing to talk about. He's like, we need like a real safety moment. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? He's like, you know what I mean. Like when you get all weird and expressive and, and uh, you know, he, he, you know, whatever. And I, and I said, all right. He's like, just think about it for a couple of days and then write all the ideas that will come out. We'll, we'll figure out which one works best. And then literally before he could even finish it, he goes, the phone should explode like a firework. And I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what should happen. So that was Ronnie's idea. And I and I loved it and and um, no I mean it is when I first told Buddy about it I told him about it um, over the phone I think I forgot I think he was in jail at the time I don't remember but he was like that's stupid that's so unrealistic why would you do that and then he saw it and he was he saw it and he's like that was incredible yeah, he's like it just it's this moment where you just kind of like. Yeah, you yeah, know, like Ilya is powerful. Yeah, and he can make a cell phone explode if he wants it to. Yeah. It's also just funny uh, adding it in. We had already shot Caleb's perform. His performance matched the the like the explosion of yeah. a firework. So it was like that was fine. It was just that's a, a good point. Yeah, you when, know what I mean. When he threw this phone in, it broke. It was like, he was like, so see, see, and we're like, but that's not funny. There's like nothing going on with yeah. the phone, but he. So, but you add a firework exploding, and I was like, oh, perfect, makes so much Even sense. Even Caleb said that he goes, fireworks saved my performance in that scene. That was a really weird shoot. It was like at a five in the morning we were shooting that, and somebody and stole he, our boom pole. I felt bad. About really? That. Yeah. I didn't even know <laughs> it was, that. It's like. Anyway, yeah, you leave stuff around. Yeah, people. The twentieth precinct yeah. was all over our movie. Yeah, all over it. They knew what we. They were. They didn't know why we were hiring some of these people that they weren't. It's just they were. So they were always at our locate, like near our locations, wondering. They didn't know what we were doing. They thought we were front at one point, which we. But we had look. It we was like actually, we had permits like to shoot in these places because you need that when you're shooting at the tripod. So I'm sure they also probably could have just like went called the mayor's office, being like, oh, where are they shooting? But. I think they were just curious for the most part. It was, a, it was like very strange. Um, so Buddy is out of prison now, mm -hmm. and he is taking acting classes? He's, he, not only is he taking these acting classes, I sat in on one of them, and I watch every single... He does, he's in a class with Clark Middleton, mm -hmm. and he was brought into the class via Ewan Bremner, who I think did what we, I want to continue to try to do in Julian Donkey Boy, Harmony Crane's movie, his performance and that, the way he subverted himself into that real world. And Chloe Sevigny, to her credit, too, as well. Herzog, I mean, he wasn't really with other people, but uh, just the way they interact with reality is, is in character and where the stakes are really high. I mean, I, I think there's a scene in that where Chloe walks into a store and buys something with, like, a lipstick camera on. Anyway, uh, so Ewan Bremner saw the movie in Tokyo, said, I gotta show it to my friend Clark. And then I looked up Clark, I was like, oh, I know this character actor. 
um, I like him. He's very cool. And he has his acting class. And I said, you know, I've been, I, I emailed a lot of teachers saying, like, I really would like to get Buddy into a class. He's getting out of prison. And he, this, you know, he really wants to pursue acting. And I'm trying to get him into this class. And he came in and he did this one scene for Clark. It was Clerks. He did a scene from Clerks. And I was just like, oh, God, really? You're going to do a scene from Clerks? He made it so deep. I made me want to like make was, the whole movie with 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 Buddy. It was no. just. It was I wanted just, to get Kevin Smith's email, send him Buddy Duress's version of me. Like this was, is this is deep. No, no. I mean, Clerks is kind of a cool movie. I mean, it it's was just, a big it was, deal it was, for me when this, I when it came out as a kid. But like the scene, the scene was supposed. To, it like it was supposed to be comedic, and he's saying lines that are comedic, just, but he's saying them with so much backstory that you like that you don't even like. It's. He, He's just saying it with so much emotion and like his face, everything added so much to these words that were just kind of like, it was supposed to be a quick... Buddy Duress, you know? <laughs> Buddy Duress, I, I love him so much. He is, I mean, I, I had him, he basically was at one point while he was upstate at Marcy Correctional Facility, he was, and I tried to get Syracuse to like book so that when he got out of jail, we can immediately get a paycheck, but they, they, got, they were too slow. Um, he, he, and I, I, he was talking about how time was going really slow in prison and, and I was like, well, look, why don't you look at every passing moment as character development or, you know, research? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's an interesting way to go through life, you know, as you look at every opportunity as an opportunity to like, kind of like learn from every single moment. So he's like, huh. And I, I talked to his mother, she was sending a package, she put a notebook in there and he just gave me about 50 pages from it. And there, I mean, there may, I mean, there's a passage, uh, I can read it really quickly. It's really beautiful. Oh, yes, please do. Um, this is from Buddy Duress's um, book, which there will be, we're, we're going to do another film with him. Uh, yeah, we're writing it right now. And uh, it's kind of going to be similar to what we did in Heaven Knows What, and so it might be an, even an addendum. All right, so he writes. Uh, I remember being in Ulster in November and December and watching the birds flying south for the winter. I was in line with the rest of my dorm coming back from the mess hall, and I told another inmate how I wish I could fly south too. And he said how he wished like 80 geese would just swoop down and pick him up and fly him away for good. Damn. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, he's just, he's a classic guy. Yeah. He always says to me, he goes, he's a year younger than me, and he's like, I was born, born I'm an 80s baby. I was like... An 80s baby, because he's like, I don't know anything about the internet. I don't care about the internet. Uh, I set him up with an email. He's like, I don't want to check my email every day. <laughs> and he was like, was frustrated by. It. I was like, listen, this is it made me feel really weird. I was like, this is what you got to do. He's like, why? And I couldn't give him an answer why. I was like, well, because people want to send you. I mean, you're in this acting class. They're gonna send you. And now he's like getting in the hang of it, which. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, it was kind of cool that he had nothing to do with it. But yeah, he's every, and what Clark is doing with him in that class is really interesting because the scenes that he has him reenacting for movies, and they film them all, are very, he picked the characters he picks for him. Like, he just did Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting. And, you know, he's, and he's acting with this girl, and she's, you know, there's like feelings between the two of them. And wow. I don't know. He's Buddy Duress forever, Ilya forever, <laughs> Ari, Harley forever. Anyway. Is Necro going to do anything? Any more acting? I love Necro. And he was, you know, that character was originally supposed to be played by Edward Furlong. And Edward Furlong was attached until two days before we started shooting. Oh, wow. And then he said, I can't leave the state of California. And we were like, 
okay. Uh, and then we were in this panic because we couldn't push the movie. Remember, Buddy got arrested 12 hours after we finished the movie. Right. So, we, and we knew that. We, he was on the run while we were making the movie and we knew that. So we had to like move quickly. And there was a few actors who we were going to like replace him with, interesting actors um, who are producers, Iconoclast, were comfortable with their name. They would like their name a lot um, in terms of what it did for the film financially or whatever. And then it just, we couldn't wait. And, um, and then Elaine or Hendricks suggested Necro. And I couldn't believe I, it didn't enter my mind because the real Scully, the, the real, the, the, Necro is a combo of like five, four characters in, the, in the, her book. But his name is Scully, and the real Scully, Necro is his, like, forget about it. He's, like, his <laughs> demigod. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's such a big deal to him. So when I finally bumped into Scully on the street a long time later, he said, I told him, I was like, you know who plays you in, your mo in the movie? He goes, he goes, don't tell me Necro, because someone told me that. And I said, yeah. And he goes, he didn't even know what to say. He was like, <laughs> so, so Necro added a lot. He added a lot of comedy, and we actually shot a lot of scenes with him that he's really pissed at me for ed editing out. Um, it just didn't. It, it, didn't it was make great. Sense. It was. They were great scenes. He's fine, but it didn't. It make should. Sense, there yeah. was that that scene between him and Ari where they where they make out and oh, it's he's great, hitting but on it, her. It doesn't make sense in the movie. You know, it, it just didn't. It added a weird motivation. I don't know. It just. But he's great, and I uh, think, it should exist somewhere though because Necro's really funny in it. Is there are there any plans to release her uh, book? You or? know, there were a, a handful of publishers who wanted to do it. Uh, and then Ari, you know, uh, Ari wanted to re, she had a new vision for it. So she wanted to go back. I mean, and look, in the, de in the defense of those publishers who wanted to do something a little bit more scrapbooky with it, the pages are very raw and it takes, you know, I think a filmmaker or filmmakers or whatever, you know, what it is, to, to kind of sculpt the in-between and create the narrative, which is what Ronnie and I did. And I don't think most readers are going to read her pages like that. I mean, there is an 80-page chapter called Ilya, which could, I think, exist as a novella. I think uh, the, and, the main... And she could, I think, and I've been pushing her to just, like, to focus on that. And, and she's, when she said when she's done with this film she's doing right now, she's going to take, she's going to go back into it. And there's an editor, Ratso Sloman, who did Tyson's book and Howard Stern's book and... He's a good friend of ours. He really, really wants to work on it, and he has a great concept for it. And I think it'll probably, we're hoping it'll be 2016, like February, because there are some people who still either, want to release either it. Either way, her pages, if if they were to be published as is, I think that it would it would provide a very unique view of the street, and that's what made me think, okay, this is a story worth telling. Was the fact that she had this. Vision and the fact that she's describing such ordinary things, but granted, you said describe everything, but she's describing very ordinary things in very intense detail. Do you know how awesome it was to read a book that way? <laughs> I mean, I, I sometimes she would write more than I could read, faster than I could read, and and I it, and Ronnie too. He's like, I need more pages. We became like addicted to them, and it was like this. It was like a book being released pages at a time, and it was very exciting, kind of, to read a book that way. I've never. I mean, I, I think there are books that, that get released that way, right? Like well, a lot of fan use, fiction or something well, like that. Well, even serialized in newspapers, you know? Yes, that's, that's, I mean, that's absolutely all true. Of, all of Dickens' novels were yeah. serialized. So oh, I didn't know that. You yeah. transported back. They were, they were published in the papers, and that's how he got paid, is by word. And mm. <laughs> that's why they're so long. But the cool <laughs> thing about this was that it was like life was happening at the same time, and I would see it happen, and then I would see how she would 
uh, express it in words and then we have this kind of fusion of perspectives. Yeah, no, I think <clears throat> you really get inside someone's head that way and you really, I mean, especially if you have a connection with them, you understand them even better if you know how they're, if you have some sort of insight into how they're understanding the world, but it's a fantastic film and thank you guys thank for you coming so out. Yeah. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>